is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, that means we're heading into the Judge Judy segment, and we do this regularly because it's a big show, and we follow it for you because, well, you have lives and we don't, and we also follow Shark Tank. These are two big shows, and basically they're stories. Every day, Shark Tank has two or three stories about entrepreneurs trying to get money, and, well... There are different parties uh, competing for Judge Judy's attention and a verdict from Judge Judy. And so today we dig into the case of the cool mom and the deadbeat daughter. Here are Judge Judy's opening remarks after a brief summary of the case. All parties in the matter, McCroskey versus Young Kloss. Step forward, please. 20-year-old Brooke McCroskey is suing her ex-boyfriend, Kevin Young Kloss, for parking tickets and for causing her car to be towed. Do you have a car in your name? Yes. Do you have a valid driver's license? No, I don't. I have a permit. Did you ever have a driver's license in your name? No, I've never had a license. How long have you had a permit? About six months, I believe. Why are you looking at me like that? I'm sorry. Oh, I was just thinking. I'm sorry. How old are you? 20. Who bought you a car? My parents did when I was like 18. They assumed I'd have a license by now. Who are you? I'm my mother. Why would you buy somebody a car that didn't have a driver's license? Because we got it for her as her 18th birthday slash graduation. Oh, there's something wrong with you. How do you get a car for somebody that doesn't have a driver's license? Because she was in the process of getting one. We found it. We just happened to come across a little car that would have been perfect. That's all. Outrageous. It is outrageous. And this is why we love Judge Judy. She just digs in and asks the hard questions. What are you thinking? Judge Judy tells the plaintiff's mother, Linda, to step forward and stand next to her daughter. She then speaks directly to mom. When she didn't get her driver's license, what did you give her possession of the car for? I didn't give her possession of the car. How did she get it? How did she get possession of the car? She had no driver's license. I was teaching her how to drive. Her boyfriend at the time said that he would help get her the hours behind the steering wheel because I didn't have the time. Just a second. So the answer to your question is your daughter didn't have a driver's license. You bought her a car. You put the car in her name? Yes. You put the car in her name despite the fact she didn't have a driver's license. And you let her boyfriend use the car to teach her how to drive. Yes. Now you can sit down. Now you can sit down. And that's what you love about Judge Judy. She gets right to it. And here she sums up the details of this case for the 20-year-old daughter. I also didn't Now you can sit. What? I also didn't live with her at the time anymore. Are you moved in with him? No, I had my own place. How do you get to and from places? Bus. So where did you put the car? I parked it out by my apartment. Well, then you have to listen to me. Let me tell you what the case is about. This case is about the boyfriend who you say parked the car. It wasn't a place where he should have parked the car. You were with him. The car was supposed to be moved in the morning. It wasn't moved in the morning because you couldn't move it because you didn't have a license. So it got towed. Yes. And you want him to pay the fees. And you want him to pay everything else that was attached to that. Yes. Tell your mother to pay it. Now, your case is dismissed. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. She has absolutely no business to give you, who doesn't look responsible enough to take care of a goldfish, a car that can be used to kill somebody. Put your hand down. You don't buy a car for a teenager who's 18 years old. You're 20 years old now, two years, and you still don't have a driver's license, and your mother didn't take the car back She hasn't you. had the car in her possession for two years because I was going through a divorce, and her stepfather had the car until a week before. He, and there, just a second. And then you gave it to her? 
Just a second. Then you gave it to her? Despite the fact that two years went by, she didn't get a driver's license? I had been teaching her. Great. I, Perfect. Uh, you so pay the ticket. That's all. Out. Are kidding me? Pfizer, excuse me. Wow. Step out. It's always amazing to listen to people dig an even deeper hole. They just keep talking. They should just shut up. You've That's watched baloney. Her. That's right. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't. So let's hear what the plaintiff and her defendant boyfriend have to say following Judge Judy's ruling. I think it's funny because that was the point that I made the whole entire time. I just don't know. There's nothing else. He just, I paid his legal fees and he doesn't have to pay me now. I'm not responsible for her car. It wasn't just the car. I'd also paid his legal fees and he just walked away with everything. I wasn't even her boyfriend. He stole my money. He broke in my apartment. He threatened to kill me. She threw a fit in downtown LA. I relinquished the keys to her. He threw the keys at me and told me to go myself. She tried to come at me with, you know, you got tickets and all this stuff. I'm not going be nice to people anymore she doesn't have a job and she wants to find an escape goat and apparently i'm that person he ruined me don't mess with weirdos he killed the nice brook did he just say an escape goat not a scapegoat i never heard of an escape goat before <laughs> i'm not gonna be nice anymore and this is why we love judge judy and it's a morality play folks and if you've never seen by the way, the 60 Minutes piece on Judge Judy, because a lot of people are wondering, how did this woman become the highest paid, well, the highest paid personality in all of television? Because that's what she is right now. And her show has been running for like forever. And it's still number one. And she still doesn't look any different than when she was signed. Do yourself a favor, because there are a million judge shows and none touches Judge Judy, none. And there's a reason. Go to 60 Minutes, click in Judge Judy, and watch what happens. They did two segments on her at her Queen's family court. And it was the highest rate segment that they'd ever had. And TV agents saw it and they went, that's a star. Because her family court was sold out in Queens. Sold out. People went to her family court, packed it up to watch Judge Judy do just what she's doing right here on TV. This is not an actress. This is not an act. Judge Judy had been doing this for a very long time. In fact, her first book was called... Stop peeing on my leg and tell me it's raining. That's Judge Judy. I'm a really smart lady. Oh, you are. You are. And I wouldn't want to get in your crosshairs, Judge. You can't dance fast enough for me. Do you understand? Oh, I understand. Yes, boss. Okay. Okay. And when we come back, more, more of our American stories. And always, more Judge Judy, more Shark Tank. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories, our Judge Judy segment, one of our favorite each week. Have I been respectful to you? There is no excuse for that. I don't think I'm finished torturing you yet. I believe that you are a mother who is pretty desperate. I would lose too many nights sleep over that. Why don't you pay attention?
is Our American Stories, and it's Infant Loss Month. President Reagan declared October as National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And we've been sharing our listeners' stories and their own experiences with infant loss. And today we have the CEO of Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, an organization that trains, educates, and mobilizes professional quality photographers to provide pictures to families facing infant loss. This helps the families in their healing process. Here's Gina with her personal experience. My husband and I were pregnant with our first baby back in 2007, and we went in for the 20-week ultrasound, and essentially we just thought we were going to find out if we were having a boy or a girl, and we learned at that ultrasound that we were going to have a boy. So we went out and we bought clothes and just different things for him. Then about two weeks later, uh, we had gone out of town and our OB doctor had been out of town too. So when we went in for the ultrasound, we uh, were just with a ultrasound technician. We received a call from our doctor and he said that the ultrasound showed that David, our son, did not have kidneys. My first thought was, okay, how can we fix that? And our doctor said, well, you need to go and see a perinatologist, a specialist, to see if, you know, to, to, for him to look at it further. When we went to the doctor, he checked everything out and confirmed that our son did not have kidneys. And what we learned was that kidneys help actually produce the lungs or, or develop the lungs because basically the baby will drink the amniotic fluid and then he'll pee it out and then drink it and that actually develops the lungs. And so the issue wasn't necessarily his lack of kidneys, but the fact that his lungs would not develop. We were told that we, you know, that he would probably come middle, mid 30 weeks gestation. And so um, we just continued the pregnancy and uh, just try to enjoy every moment that we ha- that we had with him. Just uh, sometimes he would move. He couldn't move a lot because there was no fluid. But we would just play music for him at night and just try to spend whatever time we could with him. About uh, 34 weeks into the pregnancy, I started having contractions and went into labor. And so we went to the hospital to deliver David. Now this whole this whole time, you know, I at that point it had been a couple months that we knew that David would not live. I also learned about an organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. And that organization provides remembrance portraits to parents suffering the death of a baby. When a friend first told me about it, I was a little hesitant. I thought, is that appropriate to be taking pictures of a baby in this situation? But I went to the website and I saw how beautiful the photographs were and I realized that we would never have this opportunity again to be able to photograph our son. And so I decided to have the photographs of our son. So when we went in to deliver David, uh, his heart was still beating. And when it was time for me to, uh, to push, they pulled the heart monitor off of him because they knew that he could possibly die during the delivery process. So they took the heart monitor off and 
the thing I was hoping for the most was that he would be born alive. And so when he was born, they he did not have a heart heartbeat. He was not breathing. And they handed him to me and I was I was so crushed that our son wasn't born alive. But then at the same time I remember looking at him and thinking, Wow, he this baby was in me. He is beautiful and just like any first time mom would feel about a baby, their their first baby, just how beautiful and I cannot believe that I was carrying this baby. But then the reality struck again that he was not alive. We we spent some time with him and then our photographer came in and she photographed David and just, you know, documenting our time with him. We gave him a bath. We held him. She, we weighed him. Uh, we have pictures of him on the scale of each of us holding him, of us as a family, of him alone. And uh, we, you know, we just cherish those moments that we had with him. About six hours after he was born, we just, we knew it was time that we needed to let him go. And it was one of the hardest things I ever did. To uh, give him over to a nurse and know that I would never hold him again. So at that at that point, we, uh, you know, I was being discharged from the hospital and we now needed to make funeral arrangements. And because we knew ahead of time, we were able to think some of those things through. There's many, many other families who lose a baby and it's sudden and they don't have that time to prepare. But we knew where we would where we would bury him. And so I remember going home that night and trying to go to bed. But then I realized, where where is David? Is he at the hospital? Did the funeral home pick him up? And I called the nurse at the hospital. She was back on her shift again. And she assured me that he was still there. And uh, I was just wanting to know where my baby was. So we went. Uh, so a few days later, we had a memorial service. And we buried our son, David. We were told that we could go on and have other children, that this was a fluke occurrence. And I had seen online other stories with babies who had uh, what, what it's, it's called Potter syndrome, uh, where the, the parents go on and have healthy children and his chromosomes uh, turned up okay and all the other tests were fine. So we were clear to have another baby and we got pregnant a couple months later we were cautiously optimistic, and um, we went in for a, a number of ultrasounds. I was still considered in high, a high-risk pregnancy because of our situation, but we still would need to wait until the 16-week ultrasound to see if our baby had kidneys. So at the 16-week ultrasound, we went in, and the doctor was in there with the ultrasound technician, and I'm laying there, and he just pause and he said wait a minute let me step in and so he stepped in for the ultrasound technician and he was looking and we, I kept asking him what what's wrong what's going on and he wouldn't tell us but he just kept looking and I said does he have kidneys and he said he does and I said okay then what's what's going on because we knew something had to have been wrong he had uh, us go into another room and my husband and I just we waited for it seemed like forever and then the doctor came in and he said, um, your baby has a cyst around the neck and severe fluid buildup. 
And what we later learned was that it's cystic hygromas and hydrops, so the fluid and swelling around all of his organs. And at that point, they were unsure of the gender of our baby because of all the swelling. And then um, the doctor said that his heart could stop beating at any time. And so um, he said, since he can't move, and I didn't feel him move at all, that I need to come in every week to see if his heart is, is still beating. Every week we went in and I started getting more hope because I thought maybe this is our miracle. Maybe this is what we have to go through to have uh, to have our miracle. And, and nothing has ever been too easy for me throughout my life. So I thought maybe this is the miracle. Every week we went in and then by 24 weeks into the pregnancy, we learned that our baby's heart had stopped. And so uh, the doctor said, you can, you know, you can still carry the baby for a while and you'll probably go into natural labor if you don't by a certain period of time. I can't remember how long that was. Then we would have to induce or you can go ahead and induce. And I looked at him. I said, what am I supposed to do if I'm still carrying him and knowing that he's died? So my husband and I went to the hospital that night and they induced labor and we had a little boy that we named Ethan. And I had a camera in my bag. And I remember thinking, you know, let's get some pictures because when his when he was born, his condition was extremely severe. A lot of his features were not identifiable. You could see his hands and his feet, but the swelling was swelling was pretty severe. And I knew it wasn't a situation that we would bring now I lay me down to sleep out to. And I remember thinking about the camera in my bag that maybe with him covered in a blanket and my husband and I holding him, we could have a picture of him. But I just didn't have the courage to do it. And I didn't have um, anyone encouraging me to say, you know, go ahead and take some pictures. And um, so we never photographed Ethan. And that's one of the biggest regrets of my life. And what a story, Gina's story, and more of it after these messages here on Our American Stories. listening to Gina Harris's story here on Our American Stories. At this point, she experienced the loss of two children. And then when trying to get pregnant again, she had two more miscarriages. The organization Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep helped her in the grieving process of her first son, David. And it helped so much, she went to work for the group as the CEO. Shortly after starting her job there, something surprising happened. I was pregnant again, and I thought, how am I going to go through this pregnancy? I now work it now, I lay me down to sleep, and every I know every possible thing that can go wrong in a pregnancy, but here I was pregnant, and I knew I needed to embrace that and just try to be as courageous as possible and walk through this pregnancy. I was so sure that things were going well, that we were going to have a girl, and with my uh, cheerleading and gymnastics background, I decided to look up how, how young 
or how old does she have to be to be in cheerleading and gymnastics? And I was looking that up, and it was 18 months, and I thought, that's so far away. But, um, you know, I went in for the 16-week ultrasound, and I told my husband, if this baby is healthy, then it's a miracle. And I said, but if this baby is a boy, it's a bigger miracle. But I still was sure that this is a girl, this is going to be our miracle. So we went in for the ultrasound, and the doctor checked everything out, and she said, your baby is 100% healthy. I don't see any reason for any um, any other test. And then she said, do you want to know the gender of the baby? And we said yes, and fully expecting it to be a girl. It popped up on the screen, and it said, it's a boy, it's a boy. And I said, are you sure it's a boy? And um, I was so happy the baby was healthy. I didn't didn't matter if the baby was a boy or a girl but then to learn that we were having a boy when we were told that we probably couldn't have a healthy boy um, was just so amazing it was such a miracle and we were just praising God and so thankful so then you know we we we, that whole day and for a while we were so excited but then more fear washed over me because like I said before I knew everything that could go wrong in a pregnancy, and I had met at that point countless parents who was having a healthy baby, and then their heart, the baby's heart stops at 40 weeks, or um, there's a there's um, you know just different issues that happen within delivery, and so you know we just I just try to focus on the positive, and 98% of the time I was fine, but. I would be lying if I didn't say I wasn't a little worried and each week I I would feel like he wasn't moving and so I would go to the doctor and do the stress tests and um, I didn't care what they thought of me if they thought I was nuts for coming in all the time. Well, on August 20th of 2012, my water broke in the middle of the night and we went to the hospital and as you know, we waited, um, you know, as I was laboring. Uh, our baby's heart was going up and down frequently, and he went meconium, and um, my, I wasn't dilating as rapidly as I should have been. And so I asked the doctor after being there, it was probably about 14 hours after my water had broken, and I said, are we going to have to do a C-section? And she said, in a couple hours, if something doesn't change, yes, we're going to have to do that. But because of your situation... Uh, we, you know, we can go ahead and do the C-section if you really want that. The last thing I wanted to do was make a decision. I didn't want to make a decision on something and then for it to go wrong and then to regret that decision. And so when the, the doctor left, my husband and I started talking and it probably wasn't even a minute or two that passed and she came rushing in and said, your baby just made the decision because his heart rate had dropped so low Um, They rushed me in to have a C-section, an emergency C-section. And I remember telling my husband, I want video no matter what happens. So just roll the camera. I just, I I need video. And no matter what happens, please just get the video. So when they did the C-section, I was still conscious at that point. And uh, they, they brought him out. And he wasn't crying right away, which we expected. Um... And then I heard the most beautiful sound, our baby cried. And I have that on video, and I have me crying and my husband crying, and it it was the most wonderful moment that um, you could ever imagine. After everything we'd been through, it was over five years 
on this journey and to finally have a healthy baby that, you know, I delivered him and he cried and then I was able to hold him and then we were able to bring him home and uh, his, he's named after my husband, so he's Robert David Harris Jr. and we call him RJ and he's five now and he's just the light of my life. And he knows his big brothers, David and Ethan. He talks about them and, and we've been very open about about his uh, about his big brothers. We've let him know who his big brothers are. We've never kept it a secret from him. And he he uh, prays for them and he sometimes will talk to them and talk about them. Recently he asked me why why is David and Ethan, why weren't they healthy? And I said, honey, I, I don't know why, and I don't ask why anymore. I had resolved not to ask why anymore because I know that I'll, I'll never have the answer until I meet them again, until I am in heaven with them. I'll know why, and everything will make sense. And that's our, that's our story, and it's, it's not over. People will ask me questions and I don't know exactly how it's asked but this assumption that everything's better because now we have RJ and yes uh, I think partly it's better because when my husband and I we were grieving the loss of our babies but before we had RJ we were also grieving the fact that we may never raise children of our own and at least that part has been answered for us and we've chosen not to have any more children we just don't know how we would handle it if something happened and it's just not worth the risk we're one for five at this point and so that's what we're, we're sticking with RJ now but I think sometimes people feel once you have another child then things are are better for you and um, there's healing that's come over it'll be 10 years this month since we lost David but there, there's a lot of healing that's come with that, but we still miss our boys. We still love them. And, and I often say when I am speaking to people is that we have a, we have a choice on how we're going to respond. We don't have a choice over a lot of the tragedies that happen in our lives. These things happen, and we don't have a choice of what's come our way, but we do have a choice on how we're going to respond. Are we going to be bitter, or are we going to be better? And even though there's part of me that goes into the bitterness and I feel sorry for myself and bad about what happened, I always try to focus on the better part and what can I do to give David and Ethan's life purpose and meaning. And I found that how I can do that in a number of ways. And I, I couldn't do it without my faith either. That's been a significant part of this healing journey for me. So I would have people ask me, do you have children? And this was before I had RJ. It, depending on the situation would, would depend on how I answered it. But when I would tell them, yes, I have two boys in heaven, I typically was met with, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to bring that up. And then my response back was always, thank you for bringing it up. Thank you for asking if I have children. I love my boys. I'm so proud of them. And every time I can speak about them, it values their life and it shows their significance. And great job on that, Faith, as always. And Gina, what a story. And that's Gina Harris, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep.org. Gina, her husband, RJ, 
David and Ethan. We don't have a choice of what comes our way, she told her boy, but we do have a choice how we respond. What a response. Gina's story, her whole family story, here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 13th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. It's October 15th and the Corps of Discovery are still with the Arikara Indians and perhaps with them in more ways than one. Here's William Clark. Their women, very fond of caressing our men. Okay, caressing someone in public in front of a group of other people? Maybe just a wee bit strange? So I had to inquire about this with our handy Lewis and Clark experts. First, the author of The Essential Lewis and Clark, Landon Jones. I don't know what they meant by that exactly, but... But you get the idea. I guess we, it sounds like we were making out with the men or something. I don't know. Who knows? I'm sure the, the men were very fond of being caressed by the women. And now, the take of Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, we proceeded on. When Clark writes that the Arikara women were caressing the men, he certainly is using that as a euphemism for uh, making themselves sexually available and they're not just petting their hair or giving them hugs. And although the captains are pretty quiet about this on the whole in the course of the journals, they don't avoid it altogether. Uh, when they would have published the official account, if Lewis had lived... Lewis committed suicide three years after the expedition. This would have been toned down greatly or eliminated as unworthy of, a, uh, of an Enlightenment report. So I've spent some time thinking about this, and in previous generations of the Lewis and Clark story, the white attitude towards this has been essentially what you would expect in a fraternity. You know, that the men were out there, they were young, they were lusty, and suddenly these native women made themselves available, and the men were all too happy to take advantage of that access. Uh, They were lonely, they were sex-starved, and here were available Indian women, and for a piece of ribbon or some sort of trifling piece of metal, they could have sexual access. So that's the way that it, it used to be seen. I really very strongly want to combat that. So Native peoples had different sexual codes than we have. You know, we're a Calvinist culture born of the Christian faith, which revolutionized the classical ancient way of looking at human sexuality and created a much more restrained view of sexual expression. 
And then the Puritans brought that attitude with them to the New World. And so you're looking at two different cultures. You're looking at a Christian-derived, Puritan-based American culture with its heavy repression on sexual activity in an age before birth control, when paternity mattered much more greatly than it does today. And in Native cultures, there was no such Christian inheritance, of course. They were operating by a completely different system. And because the tribes were small, there was actually a certain premium on bringing DNA from the outside, from outside the tribal limits into the into the culture. And so there was a much more generous view of human sexual expression in most Native American tribes than there was in the counterpart in Anglo-Puritan America. So that's, that's one thing. Secondly, these Native peoples were shrewd and they knew that uh, white traders, and now Lewis and Clark, had material in their boats that the Native tribes wanted. But a major way to get access to white people's goods was through sex. And if you read the journals, for example, of Captain James Cook in the South Pacific, the men realized this when they got to Tahiti, and they were so hungry for sexual comfort that they were literally pulling up the nails from on board the ship. They were trading absolutely anything they could get their hands on to Tahitian women for sexual access, and Captain Cook had to get very severe with his men because he feared that maybe the boats themselves would be disabled by this sexual hunger. And so Native peoples soon figured out that white people have a tremendous craving for sex and that one way to get white people's goods is to make uh, Native women available to them. And so this was done as a form of diplomacy, you almost might say, certainly a form of shrewd trade. So when Lewis and Clark are going up the Missouri River, they're offered women in two different ways. Uh, the captains and other leaders of the expedition are offered women as a hospitality token, as a native way of expressing gratitude that the white people are visiting and trying to show honor to them in their own way by offering Indian women to them. Uh, if they sought them, Lewis and Clark, the captains, routinely say they refused this. Whether that's strictly speaking true, we don't know. There's a long-standing and pretty solid rumor that Clark fathered a child amongst the Nez Perce. So, so these women became available, and whenever the expedition stopped for more than a day or two, there are reports of venereal disease, of sexual contact, of sexual misunderstanding, of love triangles, men who are AWOL for one reason or another, but probably to go get the company of Native women. The big question that I have about all this is whether the Native women had a, a choice. Whether this was something that was agreed upon in a family, between a couple, in the tribal council, or whether these women were pressured to embed themselves with the white explorers in order to get information, if possible, and to see what they probably couldn't see from outside of the circle, or to more practically to trade their sexual access for ribbons and fish hooks and awls and needles and, and hatchets and tomahawks and so on. And so that's a question that can't be answered, but, but we, I do know this much, that 
studies of the Mandan Indians, Jefferson's favorite Indians, and in many respects, Lewis and Clark's favorites, show that Mandan women routinely until the 20th century were more sexually promiscuous, if we can use that term, it's a pretty loaded term, but more sexually free, let's say, with people not their husbands than their counterparts in the white world. And this became part of the sort of sexual mythology of the upper Great Plains, and white visitors were aware of this and glad for it. So I think it, we have to say two things about this. One is we don't know how much actual volition Indian women had in the face of this commerce. I'm guessing that they were reluctant to bed down with a perfect stranger. But you can't say that for certain because there were different cultural codes and it's at least possible that Indian women um, of their own initiative decided that this was a way to advance the interests of their clan, their family, or themselves. And they realized that male human sexual susceptibility is a universal thing and that this was probably the easiest way to dispossess these white strangers of some token and those tokens may not have seemed of great value to us but they would have been of extraordinary value to that native culture so i really want to complicate this and not ever let it seem like a simple act of sex because i don't think even in our world sex is ever really sex Five days later, they've left the Arikara Indians and encounter not someone else, something else. Here's Meriwether Lewis. Peter Cruzat, this day, shot at a white bear. Their very first grizzly bear sighting. Although the Indians told them to call it the white bear. He wounded him. The men of the expedition had supreme confidence in themselves as long as they were holding a rifle. But being alarmed at the formidable appearance of the bear, he left his tomahawk and gun. He panicked and threw down his gun and fled. The wounded bear must have been alive enough to still lurch towards him and potentially squash him. If you leave your gun behind, when you're an explorer or a hunter out on the frontier of the American West, you're terrified. Shortly after, returned and found that the bear had taken the opposite route. I mean, this is a comic moment for us because the bear didn't catch Cruzat. Sure wouldn't have been if it turned out the other way. But poor Cruzat, his drama wasn't over yet. Soon after he shot a buffalo cow, the cow pursued him. He concealed himself in a small ravine. These two incidents exposed a humbling challenge for these overly confident men in the prime of their lives. They really only had one shot per rifle, and so when they fired it, then they had to go through this laborious process of reloading, repriming, you know, cleaning, and, and then popping up the rifle again. And the grizzly bears did not go down with one shot. You had to hit them with about six bullets to have a chance of stopping them. So one bullet was not going to do it. Clearly, (laughs) would they see more and would they survive against what Lewis later calls the grizzled bear? Well, you'll have to continue with us on this, the most epic 
road trip ever. And great job as always on that, Alex. And thanks to our Lewis and Clark experts, Landon Jones and Clay Jenkinson. You can buy their terrific books at Amazon.com. And Clay's website is ClayJenkinson.com. And he's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. This is Lee Habib, Our American Stories, the Lewis and Clark story, the most epic road trip ever. stories and we love to talk about everything here on this show and generally it's storytelling but every once in a while we just goof off actually this isn't goofy at all to us because we're going to be talking about ice and we talk about things that matter to us every once in a while here i mean hengler for goodness sakes has one of our all-time greatest segments and it was about well man wipes it was about it was about very important important than ice much more important than ice. And so for me, ice is an obsession. I like good ice. I like putting everything on ice, milk on ice, ice cold Coke. And I've been getting a hard time from everybody here at the crew because I actually, when I built my new home, I had only one request, a custom ice machine. Nice. And everybody here is treating me like I'm some kind of android or some kind of, <laughs> just some kind of weasel. Well, anything's got to be better than those crescent-shaped ones that come out of the refrigerator that you bought at you know, Home Depot or something, right? Well, because well, they absorb the smell of the broccoli and they absorb <laughs> the smell of the food. And then you put that in a perfectly good, beautiful cold Coca-Cola, and now it smells like broccoli Coke. <laughs> I don't want broccoli Coke. So, so I'm not crazy. The Wall Street Journal <laughs> the other day, and this that's proof that there's a paper, right. has on the front page, because this is front page news, mm-hmm. Jesse. Sure. You mock me. I'm, I'm, I haven't said anything. No, I know you haven't. I'll get into your beer <laughs> obsessions and, and a couple of others, too. Well, you'll do a segment on that. And this one was, in cocktails, ice cubes are hot. Huh. Hot. Craft fans drop spheres and spears favor big squares. By the way, I don't have a big square. Mine are round cubes. Right. I'm in one of those spheres and spears. It's it's parts. unbelievably hard to actually find an ice cube. They're rectangular in shape, or they're crescent moon shaped, or they're sphere shaped. I just want an ice cube. I, yeah. I have a cube bowl, Jesse. I'll bring yeah. you one. It's, it makes like two inch square cubes. But you have to break it out manually, right, and crack the. Yeah, but you have kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You do have kids. Built in slaves. Very, very. Stan is always <laughs> on it. He's always thinking about how to amortize those kids children. Touching my ice cubes, though. That's a good point. <laughs> So here's how the here's how the story starts off. The world of high-end cocktails is being stirred. Uh, oh well. The world of joke? high-end cocktails is being stirred by a development that would have been unthinkable. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Perfect timing. So the world of high-end cocktails is being stirred by a development that would have been unthinkable in years past. Bartenders want to put ice cubes in the drinks. They have tried giant balls of ice or ice in the shape of a diamond or a five-inch spear to the surprise of craft fans who have been loading up drinks with so-called artisanal ice. (laughs) Artisanal ice. I love this. However, even restaurants that boast of having an ice program to go with their cocktail program are turning back to the traditional cube. It's all coming back. Mm -hmm. The fancy cube pants are coming back to the cube. (laughs) 
And here's a quote. Ice spheres are so seven years ago, says Joseph Ambrose, owner of Favorite Ice Company, a hand-caught cocktail ice distributor in Washington that provides to about 30 bars in the area. We got to get this guy on. Mm -hmm. And I think there's one other person in here that we got to get on too. We get this ice cube maker, this maestro of ice, and maybe we get some bar owner on as we go down. So it's again, ice spheres are so seven years ago, said Joseph Ambrose, owner of Favorite Ice Company. And it's the two-by-two cube that bars want most often. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The two-by-two cube. Classy. Original. All the way back to the basics. Quote, we have drinkers who are really picky about ice, said Drew Hairston, bar manager for Bar Charlie in Washington, D.C., which makes artisanal ice in-house. Ooh, cutting out our friend Joseph Ambrose. We got to get both these guys on together. And here's what he says. He says, while some customers like smaller ice cubes because they melt faster, (laughs) he said, we have many other experienced bourbon drinkers who specifically require the cube. Now, this is interesting. Chuck Avery, a certified sommelier and artisanal ice expert, he says that the cube also looks more aesthetically pleasing compared to the other shapes. So it's all about how the drink looks. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And there's one drink, by the way, like many upscale watering holes, Bar Charlie only serves its ice cubes in high-end drinks. These fancy cubes... Like their $18 cocktail. Well, this better be good ice. Wow. At yeah. the $18 Maybe cocktail. Like made out of Fiji water or something. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's got, uh, let's see, it, it involves first setting the drink on a piece of wood on fire, <laughs> then placing the glass over the smoke when the fire is poured and put out. Then the customer then puts the cube in the smoked glass, the smoke that came up from the fire, and then pours the bourbon on top of it. Hmm. 18 bucks. We got to figure. We got to talk to Bar Charlie about this. So one girl says, Susan McCarthy says, if I was on a date, at least the giant ice cube would give us something to talk about. And so we're going to have to hit this segment hard uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, Stan, we need a call out to to Bar Charlie. And let me tell you, this guy here, Joseph Ambrose, co-owner of Favorite Ice Company, uh, who and and this sommelier too. I like the idea that there's an actual sommelier and ice man. I mean, it's the resident ice man, and they have their own ice program. So you can buy these things, apparently, or just set them on your countertop. Is that what you have? So you have your own individualized uh, ice maker not coming from the refrigerator. Yeah, that's right. It's like, it's situated next to our little like an bar. Appliance, yeah. Like an appliance, and it's sitting next to the uh, wine cooler, which is generally what people will do, and uh, where, where we pour drinks for folks. So I see you can get them for a couple hundred bucks for, like, the, the standard issue, but now I'm looking on, on like, Google Shopping, yeah. and you can buy the industrial-sized ones that you can get, like, a, at a... a a hotel? hotel? Yeah. How much are they? Like $2,000. We should get one for the studio. I mean, I know there's only six of us, but imagine if we had our own ice machine. Did you ever notice those things smell just like Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland? I have not noticed that. <laughs> I'll have to take oh, yeah, a whiff. There's a musty. very Yeah, it's like an ozone kind of a smell that, yeah, that comes yeah. out of those things. They say that those things have more bacteria inside the ice machines than actual toilets do. Well, if we uh, had an ice machine here, I would show you how I do cereal on ice milk. I would oh, show yeah. you how that works, but I would also need, I'd need my cereal, basically Captain Crunch is how you prove it, because Captain Crunch dissolves fast. Gourmet Captain Crunch. So gourmet Captain never Crunch. never put ice cubes in milk. It's no, like no. putting ice in beer. It's, it's, it should be a crime. So here's what you do. You take the ice cubes, you put them in a, in a, in a bowl, you pour the milk into a bowl, then you take a separate bowl and you take a colander, you pour the milk back through the ice in the colander, and then you do this several times. And as the milk <laughs> pours over the ice, it gets cold without getting 
sort of liquidy and ugly. This is why you don't like it. Have you, have you tried freezing milk into ice cubes? Not tried that yet. I have not tried Next that week. yet. We'll try that too. The subject is ice here on Our American Stories. And the story was in the Wall Street Journal, in cocktails, ice cubes are hot. Stay here with Our American Stories. We're ahead of the culture. We're ahead of the Wall Street Journal. And we'll talk to a couple of the folks in this story in the coming days. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month, and throughout the month, we're bringing you stories that will surprise you and move you. Our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. Ken Langone is a co-founder of a place most of us shop at, the Home Depot. And it's made him a lot of money, as you might guess. But there's one thing richer than his bank account, his heart. A very close friend of mine, Michael Solomon, has a daughter with Down syndrome. She was approaching graduation, roughly 18 years old, I think it was. And uh, she was in a program in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. And Mike asked me to go down. It was run by uh, some Catholic nuns. And so I went down, and I met her, and I met the kids in the program. We got talking, and it turned out that when these kids get done with their high school, such as it is, they really don't have much to look forward to except going home and sitting down and, and I guess watching television and doing whatever they can, the best they can. And we got talking and Michael came up with the idea that if there's some way that we could put together a program that would give these kids a future to look forward to. And the net of all that effort was Ken's, was then called Ken's Kids. Now, of course, they're much older than they were, so we now change the name to Ken's Crew. And it's a program that Home Depot has warmly embraced. Ken's Crew offers differently abled Americans the opportunity to go through an intense training program for a job that they can do, a paycheck of their own, and a future that they love. And like most things in life, it started small with just one kid, One trainer, one job placement at a Home Depot store. But since its founding in 1997, it has grown to helping over 490 people, 490 Ken's crew members. The training is no joke. It's something like six or eight weeks. Is that right? Well, it depends on the the candidate's ability to adjust and function. You know, some, some, you take the autism spectrum, some are less challenged than others. But we offer all of them an opportunity to, to the extent they can be involved. Some kids can work a full week. Some can only work, I call them kids. Some of the crew members can work a full, you know, a full week. Some of them are only able to work part time. We try to adapt their, their skills and their ability to what they're capable of doing. 
What's really neat about this too is we don't is, want a kid to fail. We, if we take a kid into the person into the program, no longer kids. I got to stop. We take a person into the program. We want them to be successful. Very important for them and their family and for us as a company. And the company has turned into companies. CVS, Outback Steakhouse, Wegmans, and more have joined in. Ken's crew is now hard at work in seven states. That's the power of one powerful story. Of one person deciding to do good and inspiring another person and then another what I love is you have quotes and other store managers have quotes talking about this hasn't been a negative on the company. It's actually been a positive that. Oh, this, yeah. So well, talk, talk, dive into that, Ken. Well, let me give you, let me give you some numbers here. The Ken's crew program has a positive impact on customer satisfaction in my store. 75%. I am proud that my store participates in the Ken's crew program. 91%. The Ken's Crew Program has a positive impact on associate morale in my store, 79%. 31% of consumers are more likely to shop at Home Depot as a result of Home Depot's Ken Crew participation. Now, we don't do it for that reason, but that's the impact it has on the customer. And not only is Home Depot employing Ken's Crew members, they've also donated to Ken's Crew to help them pay for the training. And so has Ken Langone. Ken, do you have a favorite story of a Ken's crew member that you've met? No, they're all, let me tell you what, they all turn me on. Uh, when I go in there and they, you know, they're, they all have a one uh, abiding and, and uh, uh, common, they're very affectionate. I had a meeting with a bunch of them in uh, Florida last spring. And the hugs and the kisses I got, it was just a wonderful experience for me. Uh, you know, and, and, and you know, we're, we're doing what we should do. We're, we're, those of us that have been blessed need to reach for those of us that need a helping hand and, and do what we can. And this is one that I can't tell you gives, gives me and gives Home Depot and gives the families involved and the, 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 the crew members, gives everybody, the coaches, gives everybody a sense of, hey, you know what? We're playing the hand we dealt, and we're going to make damn certain we do everything we can to make it something that everybody can feel some high degree of satisfaction with. I think it's really funny that you use that phrase, turn me on, Ken. What's that? <laughs> that these kids turn you on. I think it they, turned they me turn on. They turn me so on, funny. honest to God. When I see these kids, these crew members, I and again, i got to be careful. They're, they're, they're generally along, they're in their 20s for the most part now, some of them, many of them. And and I'm gonna give you some here's some interesting statistics. The average employment tenure of all associates since inception is 3.9 years. The average employment tenure of associates who joined the program at least four years ago of 5.9 years. 69% of participants have been employed in their current position for more than one year. 27% have been in their job for more than five years. 62 of the 162 participants who joined Ken's crew more than 10 years ago still hold their positions, and some have been continuously employed for more than 15 years. I mean, you know, they move away or the family gets trained. There's a lot of reasons why uh, they're no longer in the program. But, but the important thing is 
the traction and the sustainability is very exciting. Ken, I, I want to read one of your quotes to you and, and get you to dive deeper on it. You once said, all of us come from the same place. We're the lucky ones. We can do all the things we want to do in life. We owe these kids in the program the same opportunity. You have no idea the good and the power you have in you to change lives. And it's, it's easy for folks to think, you know, Ken Langone, he's just this rich guy. He could do anything he wants. You know, but we know your story. That's not your story. And uh, we told your story on the show. But talk to folks, you know, listening about the difference that they can make in, in their lives. Let me tell you something right now. Everybody, every, absolutely everybody listening in can make a difference in somebody else's life. And I tell people that the three most powerful things I know a kind word, thoughtful gesture, and passion and enthusiasm for whatever you're doing. So let me say this to you. If you do nothing more than you're walking down the street, you see a cop, and you stop and you say to him, how grateful we are for all the things you do to make our lives safer and better. Or, or you, I don't care, you, you, you meet somebody on the street, and they tip their hat to you, or they say hello. You say hello back to them with enthusiasm and with a sense of gratitude for their recognizing. I mean, you know, we don't just have to do things as profound as Ken's crew. There's a lot of different ways where each and every one of us can demonstrate our respect for each and every other human being on this earth. And what a voice. And you're listening to Ken Langone, again, the co-founder of Home Depot and doing what he does. And a lot of it, let's face it, a lot of it has to do with his Catholic faith. It's just born into him. It's what he does. It's what people of faith do. And by the way, there's lots of people who aren't faithful uh, and that don't have religion but do beautiful and caring things. But for Ken, you know, we would drill down and ask him, and, you know, his office is right across the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral, and he's in the process of helping burnish that place up and bring it back to what it, what, what, as he would think, God had intended it to be. And it's absolutely spectacular. If you ever have a chance, Catholic or not, Christian or not, Go to St. Patrick's Cathedral and just will be in awe of what it is in the middle of these skyscrapers. There's this place, this quiet place for you, for you to enjoy. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Ken Langone's story, Ken's Cruise story. And by the way, just a couple of facts. Approximately one in every 700 babies in the United States is born with Down syndrome, making it the most common chromosomal condition. In America, there's an 80 to 90% unemployment rate for folks with disabilities. And so if you can, if you own a business, if you're listening, do this for your company. You heard Ken say it. Almost 80% said it increased morale. What are you doing in your business that increases morale by 80%? And forget just your business, your family, your church, your civic organization, heck, your poker game. This is Lee Habib. Again, Ken Langone's story and Ken Cruz's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and Dr. Rick Rigsby is a San Francisco Bay Area native, an award-winning TV journalist. He followed his six-year television news career with a six-year graduate school stint, culminating with a PhD from the University of Oregon. Graduate school was followed by two decades as a college professor, the last 14 years at Texas A&M University, where Rick also served as character coach and chaplain for the Aggies football team. Dr. Rigsby is the author of Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout, the story of timeless common sense wisdom learned from his father. He was invited to speak at the California State University Maritime Commencement in Northern California. Parts of his speech have since gone viral, and you will understand why in a minute, but some of the greatest parts were left out. Not today. Let's begin with Rigsby's opening remarks. I won't be long. We have a lot of activities. Some of them will go into the late hours of the night. But I come from a predominantly black family. I don't know if y'all can tell that or not. And I happen to be an ordained minister. Now that's a lethal combination when it comes to time. Give Big Daddy some chicken wings, I'll talk to you all day long. Yes, sir. But in the words of King Henry VIII, as he spoke to each of his six wives, I won't keep you long, but... I will be very brief and on point. I promise you that. Brief and on point is always something we want to hear at a commencement. Let's dive headfirst into Rigsby's talk to these college grads. You won't ever receive the kind of knowledge that you've received during your time here. But I wish that you would couple that knowledge with something else. Wisdom. Wisdom from a mother. Wisdom from a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, an uncle, an aunt, a friend. Wisdom from somewhere. That that combination will keep you centered regardless of the turbulence of the sea. It's not about making a nice impression. It's about making an impact. It's about doing your best. So how do we make an impact? I learned how to make an impact from the wisest person I ever met in my life, a third grade dropout. Wisest and dropout in the same sentence is rather oxymoronic, like jumbo shrimp. Mm Mm-hmm. Like fun run. Ain't nothing fun about it. Like Microsoft works. Y'all don't hear me. I used to say like country music, but I've lived in Texas so long. I, I love country music now. I, back, yeah. I hunt, I fish, I have cowboy boots and cowboy. Y'all, I'm a black neck redneck. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? No longer oxymoronic for me to say country music. And it's not oxymoronic for me to say third grade and dropout. That third grade dropout, the wisest person I ever met in my life, who taught me to combine knowledge and wisdom to make an impact, was my father. And let's hear more about his dad. My daddy grew up in the piney woods of East Texas, a little town called Huntsville, Texas. After World War II was over, my father decided to be the only one in his family to migrate west. And in the 1950s, he found his way to the San Francisco Bay Area, fell in love with a forklift driver, 
My mother was a bad mamma jamma, let me tell you right now, baby. Didn't need a man, he was just there. My mother was a forklift driver over at the Benicia Arsenal, uh, where they would, uh, she would provide the services to support uh, the war efforts during World War II. In the 50s, my mother and father get married, and they migrate to this area. My father gets a job as a cook, a simple cook. Wisest man I ever met in my life. Left school in the third grade to help out on the family farm, but just because he left school doesn't mean his education stopped. Mark Twain once said, I've never allowed my schooling to get in the way of my education. My father taught himself how to read, taught himself how to write, decided in the midst of Jim Crowism, as America was breathing the last gasp of the Civil War, my father decided he was going to stand and be a man. Not a black man, not a brown man, not a white man, but a man. He literally challenged himself to be the best that he could all the days of his life. Dr. Rigsby's not done talking about his father. I have four degrees. My brother is a judge. We're not the smartest ones in our family. It's a third grade dropout daddy. A third grade dropout daddy who was quoting Michelangelo when he was a cook at Cal Maritime saying to us, boys, I won't have a problem if you aim high and miss, but I'm going to have a real issue if you aim low and hit. A, a country mother quoting Henry Ford, saying if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're right. I learned that from a third grade drop. Simple lessons, lessons like these. Son, don't judge people. Son, I've worked at Cal Maritime. You know I've been all over the world. I've seen good and bad in every shade. Don't judge people. The tendency of a person is to walk away from somebody that's different from them. You stay there and you get to know them. Never judge. Then he dropped Jonathan Swift on me, who said vision is the ability to see the invisible. Don't judge. Another lesson from this third grade dropout. Son, you'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. We never knew what time it was at my house because the clocks were always ahead. My father had the breakfast and lunch shift here at the academy. He had to be at work at five o'clock. We lived on tennis, we lived on Louisiana Street, 15 minutes away. My mother said for nearly 30 years, my father left the house at 3.45 in the morning. One day she asked him, why daddy? He said, maybe one of my boys will catch me in the act of excellence. I wanna share two things with you. Aristotle said, you are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Don't ever forget that. The other thing I wanna share with you is Harvard Business Review, September 2004. The article is titled, Deep Smarts, here's the thesis. Lecturing, what our universities are based upon, is the worst kind of teaching method, usually. <laughs> Present company excluded. <laughs> that if you wanna get the intended message across, model the behavior. My daddy, a third grade dropout, a cook, was modeling excellence for his boys. Combining academic knowledge and old school wisdom, that's what makes an impact. Don't judge. Model excellence. Those were lessons one and two. It's time for lesson three from Rick's daddy. Lesson number three, be kind to people. He always told us kind deeds are never lost. I get to do a lot of NFL chapels. You see some amazing things with those National Football League players. You see guys that can bench press 200, 300 pounds 20 times. You see folks that are huge, that can run like a deer. You see folks from a flat-footed position jump 40 inches, 40-inch 40 vertical leap. I even saw a white guy do it once. But the point, 
You know what stops me in my tracks? When I see one of those rich folks show kindness. It literally stops the world. George Washington Carver said, when common people do common things in uncommon ways, they command the attention of the world I just described your grandmother. I know you're tough. I know you're seaworthy, but always remember to be kind. Always. Don't ever forget that. Never embarrass mama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If daddy ain't happy, don't nobody care. But, you know, I'm trying to tell you. And when we come back, more from Dr. Rick Rigsby. And he's the author of Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout. Boy, he's talking about his dad. He's talking to the California State University Maritime Commencement in Northern California. More of his story and his daddy's story here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to Dr. Rick Rigsby's Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout Commencement Speech at Cal State University Maritime. And by the way, we do commencement speeches during the season, but also all year round, because so many good commencement speeches are floating out there. We occasionally even do really terrible ones, too. But let's return to Rigsby's. And here, the good doctor kicks it up. A couple of notches. Next lesson. Lesson from a cook over there in the galley. Son, make sure your servant's towel is bigger than your ego. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Y'all might have a relative in mind you want to send that to. Let me say it again. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Pride is the burden of a foolish person. You'll never be a great shipmate. You'll never be a great executive. You'll never be a great teammate if it's all about you. John Wooden coached basketball at UCLA for a living, but his calling was to impact people. And with all those national championships, guess what he was found doing in the middle of the week? Going into the cupboard, grabbing a broom, and sweeping his own gym floor. You want to make an impact? Find your broom. Every day of your life, you find your broom. Let's continue. Final lesson. Son, if you're going to do a job, do it right. I know grammatically that's not correct. It ought to be do it well, but I like that old school ghetto kind (laughs) of do it the right way. I'm thinking about a little boy in Los Angeles. All he wants to do is play little league baseball. His mother can't even afford to buy him a glove. And he eventually plays little league, and he's really good. And he's so good he gets a scholarship to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And he's so good he gets drafted by the San Diego Padres. And he's so good he helps the St. Louis Cardinals win a World Series. Twelve years ago when Ozzie Smith walked into the Hall of Fame, 
He said during his induction speech, and in part I quote word for word, he said, I've always been told how average I can be, but I want to tell you something. I stand here before you, before all of these people, not listening to those words, but telling myself every single day to be the best that I can be. Good enough isn't good enough if it can be better. And better isn't good enough if it can be best. Rigsby concludes this last lesson with a story. Back in the 70s, to help me make this point, let me introduce you to someone. I met the finest woman I'd ever met in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. Back in my day, we'd have called her a brick house. I was going to that great academic institution in the North, Chico State. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Probably studying really hard. (laughs) Let me just put it to you like this. I I haven't always been a preacher, if you understand what I'm saying. (laughs) This woman was the finest woman I'd ever seen in my life. There's just one little problem. Back then, ladies didn't like big old linemen. The blind side hadn't come out yet. <laughs> they, they like quarterbacks and running backs. Any former quarterbacks or running backs here? Raise your hands. Why, a couple of you? Punks. Anyway, so we're at this dance, and I find out her name is Trina Williams from Lompoc, California. And, and we, we're all dancing, and we're, we're just, just excited. And I decide in the middle of dancing with her that I would ask her for a phone number. She, Trina was the first one... Trina was the only woman in college who gave me her real telephone number. (laughs) The next day, we walked to Baskin and Robbins ice cream parlor. My friends couldn't believe it. This has been 40 years ago, and my friends still can't believe it. We go on a second date, and a third date, and a fourth date. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. We drive from Chico to Vallejo so that she could meet my parents. My father meets her, my daddy, my hero. He meets her, pulls me to the side and says, is she psycho? But anyway, (laughs) we go together for a year, two years, three years, four years. By now, Trina's a senior in college. I'm still a freshman, but I'm working some things out. (laughs) I'm so glad I graduated in four terms. Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan. So now it's, it's, it's time to propose, so I talk to her girlfriends, and it's California, it's in the 70s, so it has to be outside, you have to have a candle, and you have to have, you know, some chocolate. Listen, I'm from the hood, I had a bottle of Boone's Farm wine, that's what I had. She said yes! That was the key. I married the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. Y'all ever been to a wedding, and even before the wedding starts, you hear this, how in the world? And it was coming from my side of the family. (laughs) We get married. We have a few children. Our lives are great. Their lives are great. But then... One day, Trina finds a lump in her left breast. Breast cancer. Six years after that diagnosis, me and my two little boys walked up to mommy's casket. And for two years, my heart didn't beat. If it wasn't for my faith in God, I I wouldn't be standing here today. If it wasn't for those two little boys, there would have been no reason for which to go on. I was completely lost. 
That was rock bottom. You know what sustained me? The wisdom of a third grade dropout. The wisdom of a simple cook from California Maritime Academy. We're at the casket in College Station, Texas. I'd never seen my dad cry. Big, strong man. There are several alumni that remember Riggs that are here. We've been sharing stories all weekend. But this time I saw my dad cry. That was his daughter. Trina was his daughter, not his daughter-in-law. And I'm right behind my father about to see her for the last time on this earth. And my father shared three words with me that changed my life right there at the casket. It would be the last lesson he would ever teach me. He said, son, you keep standing. No matter what, you don't give up. I learned that lesson from a third grade dropout who was a cook at Cal Maritime who said, boy, you keep standing no matter what. I stood and a miracle took place. A couple of years later, my heart started to beat again. I'm talking in a group about like this when all of a sudden I spot the finest woman I've ever met in my life again. <laughs> First thing Janet did after we got married was she adopted those little boys, fulfilling Trina's last wish that her babies not go through life without a mommy. And then we decided to do something really bright we thought 16, 17 years ago, and that was have more children. It's worked out lovely. And I'm honored to tell you that we had more boys. I have four boys from 34 years old all the way down to my daddy's youngest grandson, who's here with me this weekend, Joshua Rigsby, sitting on the front row right there. And what a story this is, folks. Not your ordinary commencement speech. I would have remembered this one. Son, you keep standing. Remember Denzel Washington, fall forward. His great commencement speech, fall forward. Dr. Rigsby makes this final point, and it's more salient than any of his previous words. And again, this is a commencement speech at California State University Maritime, and Dr. Rick Rigsby's lessons from a third grade dropout is... Well, it's a book about his dad. Let's take a listen. Let me take you back to two days before Trina died. No hair because of chemotherapy, cadets. A tummy pooched out because of a liver no longer working. She weighed about 75 pounds. I'm in the kitchen so I can keep an eye on her in the family room. She's surrounded by pillows. Our then youngest son, Andrew, walks up with a shirt that he wants mommy to fold. And this is what I hear from Trina. Andrew, Mama, not always gonna be there to help you. She was saying goodbye. And I was so moved, I waited for Andrew to leave and I walked over and I sat next to her on the couch. And as clearly as I'm talking to you today, these were some of her last words to me. She looked me in the eye and she said, it doesn't matter to me any longer how long I live. What matters to me most is how I live. How you living? How you living? Every day ask yourself that question, how you living? Here's, here's what a cook would suggest. That you would not judge. That you would show up early. That you'd be kind. That you'd make sure that that servant's towel 
is huge and used. That if you're going to do something, you do it the right way. That, that, that cook would tell you this, that it's never wrong to do the right thing. That how you do anything is how you do everything. And in that way, you will grow your influence to make an impact. In that way, you will honor all those who have gone before you, who have invested in you. It is with great honor that I say all your life, look in those unlikeliest places for wisdom. Enhance your life every day by seeking that wisdom and asking yourself every night, how am I living? May God richly bless you all. Thank you for having me here. And what a speech, Dr. Rick Rigsby's story, his father's story, his bride Trina's story. How are you living? Good question to ask every day to yourself and all of your loved ones. All of their stories here on Our American Stories.